Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network uh, and New Books in Spirituality and Mindfulness. Uh, Today on the phone, we have Dr. Judith Orloff, who wrote a new book called The Ecstasy of Surrender, and we have her on the phone right now. Hello, Dr. Orloff. Hello. Nice to have you. Um, Why don't we begin by you telling us a little bit about yourself, your your path, and how you came to write books about spirituality. Uh, yes, well, I, I wrote um, The Ecstasy of Surrender because when I was thinking about writing a book, I was thinking, what do I most need to learn myself, or what's part of my own spiritual practice? What would I most need? And what just came into my heart was surrender being able to let go, being able to not clutch, hold on, force things, push, to be able to really tune in on a daily basis to the flow of things and be able to experience more joy, bliss, and um, intuition in all aspects of my life. I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a traditionally trained MD. I have gone through 14 years of medical training. I went to medical school at USC did my psychiatric residency program at UCLA and Wadsworth VA Hospital. And so I've been working as a physician for over 20 years, helping people to incorporate intuition, spirituality, and mindfulness into the psychotherapeutic practice. And part of that, one of the tools that I use in doing this is teaching people the spiritual practice of surrender. I consider it a spiritual practice. And so all of this is what kind of fueled my passion for this book. And whenever I write a book, it takes me a long time. And this book, happily, you know, I have no desire to crank out books very quickly because it, it takes so much out of you and it's a deep meditation for me to write. And so over this period, I've been experiencing various nuances and learning about surrender, uh, which has been extremely powerful for me as a person. Hmm. Uh, but this is uh, by far not your first book, is it? No, this is my fifth book. I've written, um, my first book was Second Sight, which was about my journey as a psychiatrist and as an intuitive and how I combine traditional medicine with intuition. And then I've also written Guide to Intuitive Healing, teaching people how to listen to intuition in daily life, and then Positive Energy. And then my last one, which was a New York Times bestseller, was Emotional Freedom, teaching people how to transform negative emotions into more positive ones. Can you um, tell us a little bit, did you have something like a spiritual experience, or how did you get to... Uh, step on the spiritual path? Well, as as long as I can remember, since I was a little girl, I always was more interested in the spaces between things and 
looking up and the powers of nature and weather and spirit. So I, I was just wired that way. I came into this world with a deep interest in the mysteries of life from as long as I can remember. And then as a little girl, I was very intuitive and I made premonitions. I would predict things like deaths and illnesses and earthquakes. I lived in Los Angeles. And so I was very intuitive and I would have dreams that came true. And my parents who were physicians, and I have 25 physicians in my family, got very, very frightened by this ability in me and told me to never mention it again at home. And so I grew up believing there was something wrong with me, that I was able to sense and know things and feel things. You know, my body is extremely sensitive. I'm what I write about in The Ecstasy of Surrender. I'm an empath, an empath, somebody who can sense other people's emotions or symptoms and actually absorb it into our own bodies. And so in The Ecstasy of Surrender, I, I teach people how to balance that, the positive and negatives of that in relationships and sexuality in health and healing, you know, how do you remain a sensitive, intuitive, loving person um, and yet not shut off or absorb the negative energy in the world? So, you know, a great deal of the ecstasy of surrender is devoted to helping people surrender to their sensitivities and develop intuition and develop a deep connection to spirituality yet not become so attuned to everything that you absorb it. So everything I write about, you know, including this book, it has to do with my own spiritual journey, you see. And so all of this in my early life, having a body like this, being an empath, having intuitions that came true, being so sensitive, I was always labeled as, quote, overly sensitive. You know, all of this was part of my spiritual journey, in terms of how do I come to terms with this as a, as a physician, as a woman, you know, as somebody who has a deep interest in staying open but yet doesn't want to be exhausted by, you know, the world because of my sensitivities. And so, you know, all of this was my spiritual awakening. You know, plus, you know, as I write about in the book, I study with a Taoist teacher who is my spiritual teacher, and I think he's probably the most important person I've ever met in my entire life in terms of my own spiritual path. And so he's helped me develop my sensitivities and meditation and the Taoist principles and really the surrender, the deep surrender to the flow of nature and all things. There's a, my favorite chapter in the book is surrender to the sensual essence of the natural world you know, how we can learn from earth, water, air, and fire, what that can teach us about mindfulness and our spiritual growth and our own vibrance. Because um, the weather and nature has always been a very important part of my spiritual path and connecting. Mm. What is your favorite um, experience in nature? What is most soothing or nurturing for you? Well, what is most nurturing for me is the water element. You know, walking by the ocean, hearing the roar of the surf, the surrender of each wave as it hits the shore. You know, that's extremely nurturing to me. So I think water, but I'm out in nature constantly because I need that to ground myself 
and I have an experience that I wrote about in the book where I was once in Kauai, in, in Hawaii, in terms of, this is about how the ultimate surrender to nature, where I was about to go into a period of silence and fasting, um, and I, I walked down to the ocean, and I put my hand on a tree, and suddenly these waves of orgasmic energy were coming through the tree, the ecstasy of nature, and pumping through my body, and it gave me a total body orgasm, just putting my hand on the tree and feeling the ecstatic and surrendering to the ecstatic energy of nature. So, <laughs> you know, I guess you can call all of these things spiritual experience. To me, they are. But the, the bottom line is that surrender is, is, is so essential to all of them. I mean, if my mind had kicked in at that point and, and started to critique the situation, I never would have experienced that. You know, we have to learn how to surrender, how to really let go, how to let go down your defenses, how to not guard when it comes to spirituality, and how to let the spiritual energy in. You know, the ecstasy of spiritual surrender is the letting go of the linear mind so that you can sense, feel, and know a higher power greater than yourself and experience that as a spiritual experience moment to moment. Hmm. It's, you know, as I, as I say in the book, it's not just about these peak experiences that each of us may have over a lifetime. It's about sensing the ecstasy of surrender in every, every moment because the bottom line of this book and the premise I keep talking about is the power of the moment and how that's all we have. We don't have anything else, and that's the great gift, and moments keep passing. And so if we're able to see the light and the spirit and the beauty in each moment and to see each person you ever meet as your spiritual teacher, mm-hmm. you know, even the annoying, difficult ones that I write about in the book and, and how in the world you surrender to them, you know, that's what I write about, how, what in the world are you supposed to do with these people? That's, that's the art of surrender. That's what I'm writing about. So... It's about finding the spirit in the moment in every little tiny thing. So how do you find a balance between um, being open to surrender and sort of letting people walk all over you? Well, you know, number one, you don't let people walk all over you. (laughs) That's not good. No. So, But what you do do is learn how to set very clear limits and boundaries with difficult people. You know, in the book, you know, I talk about energy vampires, people who can suck you dry. And, you know, how you can look at these people as bodhisattvas or spiritual teachers at the same time. What What is it that they're teaching you? And in the book, I go through different types of energy vampires, such as the anger addict, the gossip, the narcissist, the guilt tripper. You know, these people who are all around. And how do you stay clear, calm, and not reactive to these people and also set clear limits and boundaries. This is the art of surrender. You don't surrender to them and let them walk all over you. What you do is you surrender to a different tact to dealing with them, and then you have a handle on it. But you don't... Some In the book, I talk about what you do and you don't surrender to. That's part of learning the art of surrender. And what you don't surrender to with difficult people is being reactive, screaming, getting your buttons pushed, going back and forth with them. You don't want to do any of that. You want to stay calm, 
You want to stay centered and rise above their behavior and then deal with them in a more sophisticated, surrendered way. Mm-hmm. So how do you, I mean, so much of our Western world is all about control, controlling our anxiety, controlling our lives, our bosses, and so on. Um, how can you, especially in, in a Western society, um, how are you being met Uh, with this idea? How do people respond when you talk about surrender, when so much is about retaining power and retaining control? That's such a great question. I mean, that is exactly what the book is about. Um, people don't think surrender will work. They don't think it. They think if they surrender, that they're going to give up their power, they're going to give up their control and get walked all over and lose. All right. That's old paradigm thinking. That's what I'm trying to communicate in this book. That's not true. What is true is you have to know when it's appropriate to exert control and when to let go. It's the yin and the yang. It's the balance. And what most Westerners don't know is the surrender part. They know how to cling and hold on and push and alienate people by too much pushing. They know how to do that and then get their stress hormones going so they're chronically burned out by over-controlling. But they don't know how to go back and forth between using control when it's important and not using control because the bottom line is we can't control everything. It's impossible. And the final surrender in this book, the final chapter, you know, is making peace with death in the afterlife. You know, the Buddhists believe that all of our preparation in this world is for that moment of passage. When we pass over, there's no turning back. You can't not surrender to it. You must let go of all of this. You see, and Buddhists believe, as I do, that all of this is practice. You know, the letting go that we can do here, you know, gets us closer to the truth of all things and the flow of life cycles and also what lies beyond. You see, so... You know, for daily life, though, you know, for Westerners, you know, I have a chapter on, you know, how to surrender to true success, how to surrender to positive forms of power, you know, that how to surrender to the heart of money instead of just being a controlling miser or fear-based. You know, how do you deal with money from a surrendered place and yet still succeed? How does surrender figure in? all of these worldly things, and, and it's very important, it does, you know, to achieve ultimate success. You see, that's why I love writing this book, because all of this works. I wouldn't do it if it didn't work. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's very important <laughs> in my own life. And it's funny, because as a writer, you know, I wrote, I was writing this book for four years, and you're in an altered state. Well, I'm in an altered state when I write, so a lot of times, you know, I have to reread the book to remind myself of what I was writing about. So I sometimes look at the ecstasy of surrender and just reread it for myself when I get stuck and I'm holding on too tightly or I'm a workaholic, which I am, but I'm getting better, or I'm trying to control something. I'll just read my own book for a reminder. <laughs> when you say you're in an altered state as you write, can you describe that a little more? Yes, I'm in a timeless state where I don't even know what day it is half the time, let alone the hour. I just submerge myself in the process of writing, and days slip 
flip by, time passes, and I'm in an otherworldly state. So it's, you know, to, to even go to the bank or go, you know, to the dry cleaners, it's like almost like, a, you know, a huge shift in consciousness to do that when I'm writing. Um, and so memory is different when you're in a creative state. Oftentimes when you're in that state, it's not the same as when you come back to the, you really put two feet on the ground and are here in the material reality. So memory doesn't always translate. Mm. Uh, my writer friends and I always talk about this. We can't remember what we wrote. <laughs> that sounds like the ultimate focused state. It is. It is the ultimate mindful state, the surrender to the process. And plus, I'm a big dreamer, so you know, oftentimes get creative insights about my writing and surrender through my dream life. You see, so I, I incorporate, you know, as a physician, I'm still seeing patients during the week also. So I you know, get into a different state when I'm in my private practice. But, you know, when I'm writing, it's a, it's a timeless state. And it's a state I really enjoy because I'm an introvert. And I like, I really need a lot of quiet alone time because I'm an empath. And I, I need my quiet alone time to replenish. And writing is perfect for me because I could just look out at the sky and look at the clouds and feel the wind and then write some more and then maybe listen to some beautiful music and walk by the beach and come back and write some more. You know, that, that kind of thing. It's a very ecstatic lifestyle for me. Mm-hmm. You, one of the topics in the book uh, you address is the topic of soulmates. I think that that is such an important topic for so many people. What What is a soulmate? Yes, I loved writing that chapter. It's very relevant to my life as well. Um, a soulmate is somebody who you meet who is there to link on a relationship level and you help each other grow. You're um, relationship mirrors. You're mirrors for one another. You feel a sexual attraction. You feel a desire to be with them. But in addition to that, you're there to evolve your souls. And each one of you supports one another. A soulmate is by nature supportive. In the chapter, I talk about what it isn't. It's not being with an unavailable person. It's not being in an obsessive relationship. It's with two people who are available for intimacy to the best of their ability. And they're committed to one another, um, maybe throughout the eons, you know, life after life, whatever if you believe in that, to help each other grow. And a soulmate relationship isn't perfect. I believe that we're meant to be incompatible in certain areas so that we can trigger growth in our partners. You see, so it's not just smooth sailing, you know, except rarely it is, but if that's the karma associated with it. But more often, it's about issues that come up, you know, your fear, your anxieties, your view of afraid of abandonment, afraid of betrayal, you know, the relationships and soulmates, that's really the fire, you know, that brings everything up. So it's passionate, intense, it requires a lot of self-scrutiny and spiritual awareness and applying the principles of surrender. If you can't surrender to a soulmate relationship, you're not going to get very far. You know, you can't, it's, it's very hard to be, over-controlling, rigid, always needing to be right, and uncompromising when you're in a soulmate relationship. It's got to flow more than that. And surrender is key to making a 
uh, soulmate relationship works. So you're saying when we are uh, challenging each other to grow, that also entails arguments and disagreements and the occasional fight? Absolutely. It, but it all it entails pe- that two partners who are willing to work on it, though. Because if one partner isn't willing to work on it, you can't get very far. So that's the distinction, that you both have to be in it to try and repair or, or communicate whatever the disagreements are. Yes, yes. The whole Japanese conception of wabi-sabi, that there is perfection and imperfection. You know, and that's truly the magic of deep love. Soulmates have deep love. They have deep respect. And they're there for one another on a profound soul level. That doesn't mean you won't have hard days or arguments or periods of turmoil, but it means, bottom line, you are there for one another and you have trust in that. It's very powerful if you can find a soulmate. It's, it's kind of like finding a spiritual teacher. You know, how do you go about looking for one? You, you, it's very hard, you know, but if your car is to have a soulmate, then your spiritual work is surrendering to that soulmate with a lot of the techniques that I'm providing in the book and doing the soul work of relationships, you know. And, and I want to say that a soulmate is not necessary for everyone. I don't believe, you know, as I say in the book, it's not better or worse to have a soulmate. I have no judgment about it. Some people's spiritual path is very different than the path of soulmate relationships, and that's fine. You see, but if you're, and if you don't find your soulmate, to me it doesn't matter as long as you're on a spiritual path and you're doing what your destiny is. You see, but for those who do find a soulmate, then the spiritual path is that of surrendering to relationships. And surrender is key. Surrender is a missing piece in relationships, and particularly in soulmate relationships. So it has to be a, a conscious practice that you both do. A conscious practice with each other or a conscious spiritual practice? I, I believe it's all spiritual. It's all, the soulmate work is spiritual. And the conscious practice is with oneself, the willingness to look at one's shortcomings or where one's heart closes down or where one becomes defensive or guarded. So it's individual spiritual work, but it's also the spiritual work of couples. You know, when two people come together, the willingness to discuss, the willingness to communicate and and to play and to have ecstasy and bliss. And there's a chapter on um, igniting your sexual power. You know, how do you surrender to sexuality and sensuality, which is, you know, a deep part of a soulmate relationship? It can be in, in terms of, I'm defining a soulmate as a romantic partner. There are, there are other people define it differently. You know, you can have a soulmate at work. You can have a soulmate, you know, different kinds of soulmates. But I'm focusing on romantic soulmates in this book. Mm-hmm. So how do you, I've been reading a lot about uh, sexuality, I'm a psychotherapist myself, and how how 
often we when we are working towards intimacy and connection and safety the sexual tension falls by the wayside because it's too safe and too close and too intimate what is your theory how to preserve sexual uh, tension or or sexual attraction in long-term relationships Yes, I'm very involved with Tantra, which is a a sexual discipline that combines spirituality as well. So it's, and I write about it in the book, and it's a a view of of combining sex and spirit and emotions. So it's a practice that you can do with your partner, and it has to do with understanding the male energy and the female energy. You know, they're, they're different. And in order, and the male can be the container and the female is very emotional. Emotions are paramount to soulmate relationships in women, and they need to come up. And so to maintain the safety, there needs to be dialogue, not excessive dialogue. You know, I'm not personally in my relationships. I happen to be with somebody now who is quite a good communicator, and it's very, very <laughs> different mm-hmm. than being with somebody who isn't, you know. Mm-hmm. But... um to be able to talk to your partner about your feelings just on a basic level, but more than that, you know, to be able to meditate with your partner, to go out in nature, to play, to do things other than process psychologically, you know, to gain trust in other issues. And if you come upon, let's say, abuse issues, if you've had them, and it's making you shut down um, sexually, then that is the spiritual work of relationships. You know, maybe get the help of a psychotherapist like yourself or, you know, whatever kind of guidance you need when you hit a block. You know, there's a section, you know, in the book on faking orgasms because it's so common. I think the statistics are that, you know, over 50% of women fake a lot of the time, you know, because they don't feel comfortable talking about what's going on with their mates or the nature of orgasms. There's a whole section in the book on, you know, the ecstasy of orgasms and the different kinds that you can have, you know, the clitoral, vaginal, different ways of connecting to a partner that may be safer. So you have to have ongoing dialogue. You have to notice where you shut down. And also just in a practical level, you have to have Many many breaks where you can have sexual interludes, you know, and not just have it be about the kids or work or I'm too tired or the headache or this or that. I mean, there are a million good excuses, but if you if you know not to have sex, but if you find that you're using them a lot, I would suggest that that's a resistance to surrendering to the relationship. And, you know, in the beginning of the soulmate chapter in the book, I asked people to really define what they want out of a relationship. You know, if they want to have a soulmate relationship where they're connecting and they're growing spiritually, then there's certain things that need to be done in those relationships. You know, in terms of, you know, just looking at each other in the eyes, a beautiful thing in Tantra is when, even when you're just sitting, to be able to look at each other in your eyes and connect, you know, connect. It's very important. And that could be just sitting, you know, or just agreeing when you come home after a busy day to take, you know, 30 seconds to just do a total body hug so you can connect, you know. And the, the life is very busy and time goes by very quickly. 
you see. So you have to decide what you want to do with your time. And if you want to have a soulmate relationship, if you feel it's worth it to put the time into that, then you must do that and surrender to this being part of your spiritual practice on earth is a soulmate relationship. Mm. You know, if, on the other hand, you'd rather just put energy into a career and have the relationship be more minor, I mean, these are all choices. One is not better than another. Mm. But if you feel drawn, you know, so much of surrender is what you're intuitively drawn to. So if you feel drawn to have a soulmate and you actually found one, which is a miracle, you know, you found somebody that you think is potential soulmate, and you want to do the work with them, it's, it's an invaluable opportunity to grow spiritually and through the heart if you're with a soulmate. So these are all choices that I talk about you know, in the surrender book. And, you know, I also talk about what stops us from surrendering to soulmates, what closes our hearts down, what we can do to open them again. So all of this is just part of the the meditation. You know, it's all part of the beautiful meditation. As you know, as I wrote it in the introduction, you know, I feel that the most precious gift we can give to anything is our time. Mm -hmm. The time must be used well. And so... You have to mindfully make choices about what you want to spend your time on. And I suggest that people really take some deep moments out to evaluate that in your life, you see. And then if you decide, yes, I want to go into the spiritual surrender of a soulmate, then many things will come up around that. But you surrender to it. You embrace it. You see, you you can't do everything. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. You can't. <laughs> you have to pick and choose where where you want to focus your energy. And if the soulmate is it, then it's a quite an adventure, you know, to do that. Mm-hmm. You see, but you know, it's very hard if you're working, you know, sixteen hours a day every day to have the energy to commit to a soulmate. What that entails. So relationships are different for different people. Uh, and I go into in the book what stops us from finding our soulmate. You know, and one thing I write about is the whole thing of if you're a relationship empath, and all, which I am, this is what had kept me out of relationships for a really long time, is that I don't like the normal togetherness that couples, normal couples have or Western couples have. I need to have my own separate space. I need to have... Um, a lot of alone time. I need to have, you know, somebody understand that I can't be, you know, with them all the time. You know, so it's just a negotiation or living in different parts of the house or, you know, in, in, if you sleep, if I sleep with someone to be able to be with someone who goes to the other side of the bed so that I can have some space in the bed. You know, so it's just these kinds of negotiations, you know, need to happen. So empaths don't feel engulfed by relationships. I've had so many patients come to me, you know, who say, I want a soulmate relationship. Why can't I find one? You know, really beautiful people with open hearts. But when we explore in therapy what's going on, there's often a subliminal fear they're going to get engulfed or they're going to lose themselves. In the, in the relationships, or they're going to, you know, not be heard, not be seen, or, or abandoned, or whatever the whole matrix of resistance is. So to me, as, as a psychiatrist, I mean, this is exciting work. You know, what keeps us from the surrendering, and how can we heal all this stuff? 
you know, because we're meant to heal here on earth. We're in these bodies, our housing our spirits, and we're meant to heal. And this is one vehicle in surrender that will allow you to do that. So I hope if people embark or are in the relationship of meditation of surrender, that they could embrace it. And it's extremely powerful. So And enjoy. You know, part of surrender is enjoying yourself. It's surrendering to joy is awe and wonder and seeing the miracles and little things. You see, so it's it's just such a rich topic that could be applied to anything. Success, power, money, communication, soulmates, sexuality. And I have a, I, I feel it's a very helpful section on surrendering to aging mm-hmm. and how to approach aging with a surrendered attitude instead of dread, you know, and how to approach as a chapter on illness and pain. How can surrender help the healing process? How can it help you if you're in pain? You see, it applies across the board. It's surrender is a spiritual principle. But what interested me about writing this book was I wanted to show readers how it can apply to everything. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about that surrender to aging. I, I just read a book by Richard Rohr who said that, or, or Jung rather, he quoted Jung saying that uh, we spent the first half of our life trying to become somebody and define who we are going to be in the world. And the second part of life is really about preparing for the ultimate passage, um, surrendering to the fact that we're not going to be around forever. How do you do that? How do you come to terms with aging, especially in these days where we may have, you know, 30, 40, 50 years between midlife and the actual end of life? Um, A very good question. In the book, I go through different aspects of aging, physical aging, emotional aging, spiritual aging, and energetic aging. It's not just physical aging. And I think that's where traditional medicine falls short because they equate aging with physical aging. But there are many more aspects to it. And But in the physical aging section of the book, you know, I call it radiant aging. How do you age with radiance and in- Increase your radiance as the years come on, as you get older, you know, as opposed to dimming and, you know, if you, and become, having your light be less bright. You see, and that, that, the bottom line is that is your spiritual development and your energetic development. How do you ignite the light inside of you through meditation, through yoga, through contemplation, through nature, through acts of the heart, through being a good person? through being self-loving, you know, all of these things that ignite our own light that help us as we age to become bright beacons, you know, as in the spiritual development can only get better as you age. It's not something that gets worse. In fact, younger people have are at a disadvantage usually because they're, you know, more mature on that level and they need more years to develop their own light and their own energy. You see, so there's spiritual aging, which can make you very bright, and it's those who don't have a spiritual practice that age quite differently, and that's just obvious. If you go to a high school reunion or you you watch how dramatically different people age, you see people with a spiritual practice who've been meditating versus those who've been, you know, just working, you know, at the grindstone for 50 years, you know, at the computer, 
you know, without meditating, without doing anything else, but just taking care of, you know, mundane aspects of life, it, they age very differently. So spiritual practice can help you age more radiantly. In addition, in the physical aspects of aging that I talk about in the Surrender book, I go through various anti-aging um, techniques that you can try in order to optimize your physical body. And there's so much um, interesting research on telomere research, you know, where they feel that you know, aging happens because the chromosomes can no longer re- replicate and they break off. And so there's all this research on what they can do to keep this enzyme called telomerase going so that you don't have the chromosomal breakage. So I go into that. I go into... Um, inflammation, how you can reduce inflammation in your body, which increases aging, how you can decrease glycation, excuse me, which is when you get older, your pancreas can't handle glucose as well. And so you put on belly fat and, you know, you're not able to, you know, handle what a younger body could handle. And so when you deal with these issues, these are just a few that I'm talking about in physical aging. When you just deal with those, that will alone will increase, will benefit you. And the younger you start, the better you, you'll get. So they're very specific how-tos in terms of how to improve your physical aging, spiritual aging, energetic aging, and emotional aging. As your attitude about aging, the amount you worry about it can affect how you age. So, you know, I mean, it's fascinating because, you know, as I'm aging, it has great interest to me, you know, how to stay as vibrant and playful and alive as possible, you know, and through exercise and I do yoga and I do stretching all the time. Like when I write, is it so awful to be at a computer all the time for your body that I have a yoga mat by my computer so I do the child's pose or I do other poses and to stretch and connect, you know, and then go back to writing. So you, you need to keep your spine very flexible to age well. So I go through all of this in the aging chapter, and to me it's fascinating, and I, I apply all of it to my own life. So um, the other Chapter, I think that's following this one is um, surrendering to illness. Has, did you have per- personal experience with that or with your patients? Uh, well, I, I knock on wood, I haven't had serious illness in my life, but I've had various, you know, issues like over the years, back issues, sinus issues, um, you know, when I went through menopause, menopausal issues, you know, that I've had to work with in my own body um, using the surrender techniques. And, you know, I've had pain at various times, but I've also worked with my patients throughout the years who have had those kinds of things, but also more serious kinds of illnesses, you know, that they've, that they've worked with and patients in severe pain. You know, and how do you deal with severe pain where you feel like you want to die because you're in so much pain and nothing works? You know, I've worked with a lot of people who've been in intense suffering and how surrender can apply to that. For instance, you know, if you have pain, the more you clench, the more pain you'll have. And it's kind of your body tricking you because your body wants to guard 
when it, when it has pain, but really that increases the pain. And so through mindfulness, the practice of breathing, the practice of relaxing through pain, the practice of tuning in to the messages that pain sends via intuition in terms of what you need to heal, in terms of why you have the pain, in terms of what you can do to release the pain. You know, this is the art of surrender during pain, but if you clench, if you try and over-control, and if you worry yourself to death, that will increase the pain and decrease your immunity and not facilitate healing. So you use the word intuition a lot, and that's something I've often grappled with, sort of how do you know what's yours, what's your intuition, what is it, what have you not picked up in a movie or somebody else talking to you, what is really innately your intuition? Well, in the book I talk about how intuition helps surrender, because it teaches you what you surrender to and what you don't surrender to. Intuition can be a gut feeling, it could be a hunch, it can be a flash, it can be a body knowing, it can be a dream, it could be simply if your energy goes up or down around somebody. That's an intuition. And so if you begin to train yourself to listen to those forms of intuition, then test them out in real life. And if they work, then you know they're yours, you know they're real, and you just have to get a lot of feedback with trusting them. So really um, examining whether the intuition then turned out to have some kind of footing. Yes, and authentic intuitions are usually either neutral information or they're compassionate. Now, as I talk about in the book, if they have a very high emotional charge, they're usually not intuition. So that's how you tell the difference between fear and intuition. But I go through that in the section on illness, and I take people through step by step. How do you tell the difference between fear and intuition? How do you know whether to surrender in an illness process or whether you're just caving into it, which is not what you want to do? There's a big difference. You know, between just saying, all right, I'll be have pain the rest of my life. That's not the surrender I'm suggesting. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, you know, I go through, it's a very how-to book. It's very practical. It's filled with strategies and quizzes. And so you can directly take what's in this book and apply it to your life. And I wrote the book in such a way that you could start at any chapter. You know, if your issue is pain and illness, you don't even have to read what's before it. You can go right to the pain and illness chapter. Or if you, your issue is soulmates, you just go right there. So you can read it in any order and go to any topic whenever you feel like it. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that about the book. So it's not necessarily linear. Though, though I would suggest that you read the introduction because that's the basis um, you know, for my philosophy and how I use surrender as a position and, and how I'm suggesting you approach the book. Mm-hmm. So that would be very helpful. Mm-hmm. So last question. Um, how do you prepare for passing away is what what kind of what do you believe happens after the body dies well ever since i've been a little girl i've been fascinated with death i just like i i told you in the beginning of the interview i've just been fascinated by life and death i was born that way i was just kind of, i always thought about it you know and i've had many intuitive experiences where i've had you know a direct knowledge of death 
and what's on the other side. And in fact, there's a exercise in the last chapter, surrendering to the energy of death, where I take you through an exercise where you can experience what death is too. And that might sound scary or it might sound outlandish, I don't know. But what I do know is that it's possible through your intuition to experience what's beyond the thin veil between life and death. It is not such a big difference. I look at death as a parallel universe to life. It's not something that just has a has a beginning and end. It's an energy. It's a very creative energy. And the way you prepare yourself is through meditation, if you can actually feel it, which I want to lead readers through this exercise, you can actually feel it. You'll see how beautiful it is, how there's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, so many people have come back from near-death experiences and just said the same thing. It's amazing. It's beautiful. The Earth is the suffering planet. It's not the other side. (laughs) (laughs) So people have it backwards. But if you really want to know this, you can do it through, through meditation. Um, I have a section on near-death experience research. You can go through the research done by amazing physicians who have been, you know, cardiologists who have worked in resuscitation, who, you know, their experiences about, you know, those who have come back and what they've told us, you know. But more important, you need to have a direct experience. So once you know there's nothing really to be afraid of and you have a deep spiritual sense in the soul's longevity, that's the surrender. I mean, if you truly believe that in your heart, you know, it's living is the hard part. It's not the dying. <laughs> but you only know that through your intuition. That's a beautiful final word. Word. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking all this time to talk about your book. Um, you made me very excited about reading some of the chapters again. So thank you again for all this. Uh, and let me just ask you one more thing. Are you thinking about writing something else or are you taking a break for now? Oh, no. At this point, I never want to write another book again. I mean, this is how I get. Because I can. I had four years of an inner life. I just want to go out. I thought, you know, I'm moving. I just want to go out and decorate my new house. You know, I want to do other things at the moment. Not right. <laughs> but I'll probably write again. But I'll have to get there first. <laughs> very smart. Once the intuition comes to you, you will be ready. Well, thank yeah, you I'll very... be ready whenever that is. Exactly. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Okay, you're very welcome. 